Well, this morning we have sung about Christ and the priority of focusing on Him. You know, if you're a believer here today, that resonates with your heart. John Owen describes believers like a compass with a needle that always points north, with our hearts always being drawn back to Christ. This morning, we're going to study Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, that focus on the supremacy of Christ. You know, the idea of supremacy or superiority is often used in military contexts. People speak of having air supremacy, the the total unhindered domination of airspace in a particular area, or military superiority, the, the clear authority and power over a specific region. Operation Desert Storm, the, the Gulf War of the early 1990s, was one of the greatest displays of military superiority in recent history, certainly in my lifetime. You may recall how after Saddam Hussein's troops invaded Kuwait, U.S.-led coalition forces responded in force. It was described at the time as a display of shock and awe intended to communicate to both the Iraqi military and the rest of the world the, the sheer military dominance of the U.S. and its allies. General Norman Schwarzkopf, who served as commander of the coalition forces in the Gulf War, said yesterday, Iraq had the fourth largest army in the world. Today, they have the second largest army in Iraq. While that was certainly an impressive display of military supremacy, it pales in comparison to the supremacy of Christ. You know, really, the entire book of Colossians is focused on this theme of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Paul was writing to a church that was at risk of being influenced by false teachers who distorted Christ and minimized his work. We, we don't know the exact nature of this Colossian heresy, whether it was Gnosticism or some related philosophy. There's some clues throughout the book, and Paul addresses it more directly in chapter 2. But here in verses one, or chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul lays a foundation by explaining and exalting the person of Christ. It's really the, the capstone of Paul's focus on Christ in this book. And this passage flows out of Paul's prayer that began in verse 9. In verse 12, he prayed that they would be joyously giving thanks to the Father, and then he described why. Back up in verse uh, 12, it says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, Paul said, we pray that you will be joyously giving thanks to the Father for what he has done through the Son. And then he launches into this focused text on a vivid description of Jesus Christ, that beloved Son. Now this passage has some significant structure and repetition. As we read it, you may have noticed the, the repetition of he is, describing various aspects of Christ's person and work, or, or the repetition of the idea of being the firstborn in verse 15, the firstborn of creation, and in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, or kind of the, the bookends of him speaking of 
all things in, in the heavens and on earth in verse 16 and, and the things on earth or the things in heaven in verse 20. You'll, you'll notice a variety of other parallels as we work our way through this. But because of this, some think this may be an early Christian hymn about Christ possibly adapted by Paul or even written by him. And so we may be studying what was a common hymn about Christ in the early church. Just as we have sung this morning about Christ, the early church would sing and rehearse the truths about Christ through song as well. Now we can't say for sure that this was a hymn, and and regardless, I'm not going to try to sing it for you, so you don't have to worry about that. But what's clear is that this is exalting Christ's person and work, highlighting his supremacy. Now, in some ways, as we work through this text today, we're going to be overwhelmed by all that Paul communicates about Christ. And certainly, we can't do justice to all the realities that are mentioned. Some of these phrases have such depth, we could spend all our time thinking about one phrase. But like the response to the military supremacy at the beginning of the Gulf War, we ought to respond to this onslaught of truth about Christ with shock and awe. So let's consider together three aspects of the supremacy of Christ that should drive us to exalt Him. The first is the supremacy of Christ in creation in verses 15 through 17. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. These first three verses teach the supremacy of Christ in creation, and and they give several reasons or descriptions of that supremacy. The first is that Christ is separate from creation, or Christ is distinct from creation because he is God, in verse 15. Notice how he begins, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, that word image has a range of meaning. It can mean anything from a partial or superficial likeness to a complete likeness or similarity. We know the partial use of that word with with things like Jesus taking a coin and saying it has the likeness or the image of Caesar on it. It's some reflection of Caesar, but it's not the same. Or, or even as man being made in the image of God. We bear some resemblance to God, but we are vastly different than him, and yet we are said to be in his image. That's not how Paul is using it here. Here Paul means it as the complete likeness to God. We, we know that because of what Paul goes on to say about Christ. Down in verse 19, he says it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. All the fullness of what? Well, two, chapter 2, verse 9 says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is the fullness of deity. He is God. Now, why did Paul not just say he is God? Why use this language that he's the image of the invisible God? 
Well, Paul is helping us to understand that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, come in the flesh, is the one who has revealed God to us. God is spirit, hence the invisible God. And Christ is the one who has revealed that which is invisible. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Paul makes this point elsewhere. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul uses a very similar phrase and helps us to understand what he means there when he writes in verse 3 through 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 about the gospel. And and he says at the end of verse 4 that the unbelieving world might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, Christ is the image of God. What does that mean at the end of verse 6? It means that we see and have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is clear elsewhere in the, in the New Testament. John makes it crystal clear. In John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking of Jesus. And verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is so much the case such that Jesus says, He who sees me sees the one who sent me in John twelve forty-five. Jesus says, I am am one with the Father, and if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We see this in the book of Hebrews as well. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer is introducing his book also on those themes of the the superiority and sufficiency and supremacy of Christ and And he begins by reminding about how God has revealed himself and and Christ being that final word. He says in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. He says God revealed himself in the Old Testament through the prophets in a variety of ways, but now he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ is the final, most complete, comprehensive word from God. Why? Because he is the exact representation of God because he is God. He is the image of the invisible God, but he is also the firstborn of all creation. Some have misunderstood this phrase as well to to mean that Jesus is the first created being. 
Mormons, for example, teach that Jesus was the firstborn spirit child of God, and Jehovah's Witnesses also teach that Christ was created, but that is not what Paul is teaching here. Firstborn can be used as first in relationship to time. If if you ask me who my firstborn is, I would tell you it's Anna, the oldest of our five girls, and, and she's of the same quality and kind as the other daughters that we have. But this term can also be used of the preeminent one, of first in relationship to rank. You see this in Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, which says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The supreme one. Here, it clearly cannot mean that Christ is the first created one because of what Paul says next. And in verse 16, he says, by him all things were created. Christ clearly did not create himself. That doesn't work. And verse 17 says he is before all things, before all that was created. So it must mean that he is the preeminent one over creation. One commentator puts it this way. He says this phrase provides an additional description of the Son by pointing to his supreme status above all created beings. You see, Paul is making the point here that there are two categories of beings in the universe. There is God the creator and there is all creation. And Jesus is in the category of God the creator. He is separate from or distinct from the creation because he is God. Christ is separate from creation and he is secondly the source of creation. Christ is the source of creation. Notice verse 16 says, For by him, or in him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It says all things were created by him or in him. What does he mean, all things? Well, it's complicated. He means all things, as in everything. But just in case you might misunderstand that, he elaborates. He says this, this all things includes both the things in the heavens and on earth. You'll recognize that language from Genesis 1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that was created was created by him. But it's not just the visible things in our universe, the physical universe. He says it's also the visible and invisible. What does he mean, the invisible? Well, he describes it as those, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. If we had time, we could look at verses like Ephesians 3.10 or 6.12 that make it clear these are talking most likely about spiritual beings, about the invisible spiritual realm. All things, the physical universe, the invisible spiritual realm, all the spiritual beings have been created in him or by him. What does this phrase mean that they've been created by him or in him? One commentator says he is the location from whom all came into being and in whom all creation is contained. 
Another says, in his person resided the creative energy that produced all of creation. All of creation comes from him. And it says all things were created at the end of this verse through him. This is more referring to the agency of Christ, that Jesus was the agent through whom the Father created. Think of it maybe as the the Father being the architect, the designer, Christ being the the foreman, the one who is directly uh, working to see it created, and the Spirit being the laborer, as it were. As Genesis 1-2 says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. As John 1.3 says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the source of creation. Everything that exists is not an accident. It did not just stumble into being over billions of years. Jesus Christ created all things. Christ is the source of creation. And third, Christ is the sustainer of creation. Notice verse 17. It says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is before all things is another phrase that shows Christ as distinct from creation and gives clear evidence of the deity of Christ. You may think back to the the personal name of God that he revealed to Moses, the name Yahweh, I am. God is the only eternal one, the one who has always existed in perfection. And Paul is saying that is Jesus. He is the one who is before all things. Now some think Paul and others made more of Jesus than he intended of himself, but that's not true. Paul is merely expressing here what Jesus made clear about himself. I love John chapter 8 when he's interacting with those of his day, and, and they ask him the question, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died, are you? They said, you're not, you're not more important than Abraham. And Jesus says, well, well actually, um, he, he says... Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus was not bad at grammar. He is saying, before Abraham was, I am. I am Yahweh. I am the eternal self-existent one. The Jews got the message, says in verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus says, yes, I am the one who was before all things. I was before Abraham and everything else. I am God. And he says, all things are held together by him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, Christ did not simply start things off in creation and then withdraw, leaving creation to itself. You know, he's not like a a home builder or a pool builder who, who makes it to begin with and then eventually the warranty expires and they disappear never to be heard from again and you're left to fend for yourself. That's not Jesus. 
He is the one who holds all things together. As Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Were it not for Christ's active involvement upholding all things, the universe as we know it would cease. You know, science has some degree of ability to identify and describe what happens in the universe. I mean, big picture, there are tiny little atoms that make up everything with various particles that are functioning together in amazing reality. Uh, On a bigger scale, we are now on planet Earth, right? Floating in space in what has been named the Milky Way galaxy. And our planet is, is revolving around the sun, one of countless stars, and it's at a perfect distance to allow life. Science can tell us something about those realities, but it cannot fully explain why they work in such a way. Because the reality is, it is all held together by Christ. You see, creation, all of creation, including you and me, is dependent on Him. This is really connected to the idea that, of that phrase before, to the deity and the eternality of Christ. You see, as the eternal one, the I am, Christ is self-sufficient. He, he was before all things. He needed nothing other than himself, the Godhead. He's perfect in and of himself. He needs nothing. He existed for eternity past, before all things. He is eternal. The reality, though, is creation is temporal, and creation is dependent on the one who is independent, the self-sufficient one. Creation is sustained by Christ. Why did he create? Christ, who is separate from creation, the source and sustainer of creation. Why? What is the reason for these things? We see it briefly at the end of verse 16 in another little phrase. All things have been created through him and for him. You see, all that was made, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, was made for him. It was made for his pleasure. You know, God delights in his works. Psalms, the Psalms speak of that, Psalm 104 and others, that God takes delight in the works that he has done. That's why God created, so that he could delight in it. But it's also for his glory, to put him on display. Psalm 19, Romans 1, other passages make it clear that creation declares the glory of God. It was made for him, to magnify him. Do not see the creation. Do not look around you at all that God has made and fail to give glory to Christ. You know, the reality is creation is all around us and and we can kind of take it for granted. You know, the sun rose again today and it will set again tonight. You'll see the moon in the sky and, and if you get away from the Metroplex far enough, you can see the stars and the universe. Think even just of your own body and the complexities of how God made you to function. All the various systems working together. 
Think of the varieties of plants and animals that God has made, things we get to see around us and and others all over the world. If you travel to see the vastness of the oceans or the towering majestic mountains, don't lose the wonder of it all. And don't cease to connect the creation to the exalted Christ. Paul is not finished, though, exalting Christ. Rather, he transitions from the supremacy of Christ in creation to the supremacy of Christ in the church. Notice verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. One commentator writes this. He says, As Paul affirms Christ's supremacy over the community of believers, the attention shifts from the cosmos to the church and from creation to redemption. You know, this is no accident for Paul or for Christ. For with all the wonder of the created physical universe and even the invisible spiritual realm, Christ is uniquely concerned for his body, his bride, the church. Notice first what's said about Christ here, that he is the sovereign over the church. He says he is also head of the body, the church. This idea of Christ as head of the church is woven throughout the New Testament in this analogy of the church being his body. We are the body of Christ. We have different roles and gifts, fulfill different functions within that body, but Christ is the head of the body. Head implies authority over the church. He is the sovereign Lord. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 highlights this. It says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Part of all things being in subjection to Christ is the fact that he is the head, the authority over his body, the church. Ephesians 5, 23 and 24 puts it clearly, Christ also is the head of the church, and the church is subject to Christ. You see, we don't get to decide what the church should be or do. Christ does. He's the head. He's the authority. We do and, and, and don't do the things that we do based on what Christ commands and calls us to as a church. He's the head But head doesn't simply imply authority. As the head, he is connected to the body and is the one from whom the life and growth of the body flows. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 highlights this. It says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Christ is the the head in, in that all of the life and growth of the body flows from him as we remain connected to him. And it's right that we recognize this about Christ, the head of the church, and because he's also, secondly, the source of the church. Christ is the source of the church. 
He says, and he is the beginning. I think Paul is making a a distinct point here compared to what he's already said in verses 15 to 17, that Christ is the one who began the creation. Here it's in the context of the church. He's speaking in relationship to the church that Christ is the founder or the beginning of the church. Again, this idea implies ownership and authority. Sometimes this word beginning is actually translated as ruler because it has that idea of the founder who has authority over in in that. Just as Christ was not only the initial source of creation, but also its sustainer, so he is the sustainer of the church. He, He began it, he inaugurated it, and he will continue to see it grow and thrive. Matthew 16, 18, he said, I say to you, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Christ is the beginning, he is the source of the church, and he is thirdly the savior of the church. Christ is the savior of the church. It says he is the firstborn from the dead. The reality is Jesus died. Paul will elaborate on this in verse 20 when he speaks of how he made peace through the blood of the cross. And in verse 22, how We are reconciled in his fleshly body through death. Even in verse 14, how we have redemption in him. You see, Jesus' death was absolutely essential for our salvation. For us to be reconciled with God, we needed Christ to pay the penalty that our sins deserve in death. But here Paul focuses on his resurrection He is the firstborn from the dead. Again, not first in time. There were others like Lazarus who was raised from the dead before Jesus, although does Lazarus really count when he died again and and so he still faced death. Jesus was the first to receive a glorified body. He was the preeminent one to rise from the dead. And he did so as the first fruits, as the deposit of more to come. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He's like the, the first part of the harvest that's a guarantee or a sign that more is coming. But more than simply being the first, he's the preeminent one. He's the one that really matters and the one that is deserving of honor. You see, our life, our hope of salvation hinges on the reality that Christ rose from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, none of us have hope of eternal life. Paul elaborates on this extensively in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 22, and and he makes the point that if Christ had not been raised, our faith is in vain. We are still in our sins. It is worthless for us to gather, but Christ has, in fact, been raised. You see, for those who are in Christ, for the church, his body, his resurrection guarantees ours. His life is what gives us eternal life. He is the Savior of the church through his death and resurrection. 
Christ is the sovereign over the church and the source of the church and the savior of the church. And all this is true of Christ and the church. Why? Look at the end of verse 18. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. All of this is true of Christ so that he will be the preeminent one, the exalted one in everything. Certainly this is true in every sphere of life. There is nothing that ought not have Christ at the center as the preeminent one, the exalted one, but this is particularly true here in regards to the church. Christ is the head of the church and the source of the church and the savior of the church so that he will be the exalted one. There's a reason we spent all morning singing about Christ, that he would have first place in everything. Do not see the church. Do not participate in the church. Do not be a part of the church and fail to give glory to Christ. I hope you enjoy and appreciate this church. Certainly I and and my family do, but do not enjoy and appreciate this church without giving glory to Christ. Do not observe the, the growth of this church or the establishment of and growth of new churches, churches like Northlake, our church plan, and a future, our future church plan, or, or the growth of churches in other areas of our Judea and Samaria, or even the ends of the earth, and fail to give glory to Christ, the one who is building his church. So we see the supremacy of Christ in creation, and the supremacy of Christ in the church. Lastly, we see the supremacy of Christ in the new creation in verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In these last verses, Paul returns to the theme of all things on earth and things in heaven that he began back in verse 15 through 17. But rather than focusing on Christ creating all things initially, as he did in the earlier verses, he is focused here on him reconciling all things to himself, on the new creation. Such reconciliation required the incarnation. As verse 19 says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. As we saw earlier, it's the fullness of deity. It pleased God for Christ to come as fully God and become fully man in the incarnation. And that was necessary for all things to be reconciled to him. It also required the atonement, his death, the blood of his cross. But what does it mean when he says to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, to himself? Certainly it cannot mean that all will be saved. That is the heresy of universalism. That eventually God will say, well, it's okay, everybody gets into heaven, no big deal, all will be saved. 
We know this cannot be what Paul is teaching because of what he says elsewhere and because of the entirety of what the Scriptures teach. If you read your Bible at all, you know that not all will be saved. We see that in the immediate context. Paul continues in verses 21 to 23 to describe the personal reconciliation that comes in salvation but it's, it's a conditional one in the sense that it's not true for all. He says in verse 22, he's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So you are reconciled in a saving sense, made right with God only if you continue in the faith and, and the hope of the gospel. So Paul is not speaking here of the personal reconciliation of salvation, but rather of the restoration of all things to proper relationship to Christ in what Scripture refers to as the new creation. Now we're studying Revelation. We're going to see this continue to unfold in, in great detail. But briefly, this restoration of all things involves three things. The first is the restoration of the cursed creation. You know that sin has affected all of creation. It's not just a personal issue for you. It has affected all of the universe. The world hasn't been the same since Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. Romans 8 makes this clear. If you turn over there briefly with me, we see this reality about the creation, that it's been affected by sin and the curse. Romans chapter 8, verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility. If you've been alive for any period of time at all, you feel that, you see that. You walk outside and the weeds are growing and the grass is dying and you're like, this is not how it's supposed to work mosquitoes come and bite you and you say this world is broken creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it this is a result of the fall and of the curse and the consequences of sin but in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves also having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Just like we know our bodies are decaying and deteriorating and we look forward to the day when we will receive a new glorified body, all of creation looks forward to and longs for, groans for that day when it will be restored and made new. One day Christ will return as we've seen in Revelation. The curse will begin to be lifted in the millennial kingdom and then he will fully restore the cursed creation in the new heavens and earth. But it's not just the creation that will be restored. This idea of all things being reconciled to himself includes, secondly, the redemption of repentant sinners. Sinners can be redeemed. We can become new creations, new creatures in Christ. 
This again is what Paul referred to in verses 12 to 14 of how we can be transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, how we can be redeemed, our sins paid for by Christ, and Christ's righteousness credited to our accounts so that we are forgiven. So we enjoy all the benefits of citizens of Christ's kingdom and and the inheritance as members of His family, as verse 12 talked about. This is also what Paul's going to focus on next in verse 21 to 23, how those who were alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, can be reconciled to him, can be presented to him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is true of many of us here today, that we have been made right with God because of Christ as we have repented and trusted in him. And this is available to all today. If you will humble yourself, if you will cry out to the Lord in repentance and faith, you can be forgiven because of Christ. But what does this idea of reconciling all things to himself mean for those who do not repent? For fallen angels and people who reject Christ and the gospel, are they saved? The answer is clearly no. But in one sense, they are restored to proper relationship with Christ. Think about it. There's, there's two ways to make peace between those who are at war. One of those is willing surrender. The church is at peace with Christ because we have willingly surrendered and eagerly surrendered to him. The second way to make peace between those who are at war is that of conquest. All will one day be at peace with God in the sense that their relationship will be restored to its proper place. But that brings us to the third aspect of all things being restored, which is the rule of Christ over his enemies. The rule of Christ over his enemies. Great commentator Hendrickson writes this. He says, there is of course a difference in the manner in which various creatures submit to Christ's rule and are, quote, reconciled to God. Those who are and remain evil, whether men or angels, submit ruefully, unwillingly. In their case, peace or harmony is imposed, not welcomed. This is the message of Philippians 2, isn't it? That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the message of Revelation 19 and 20, that Christ's enemies will be defeated. Christ's enemies will no longer fight. The war will cease, for they will have been crushed. All things will be reconciled in the new creation. The cursed creation will be restored and every knee will bow, some willingly with joy, others under compulsion at the supremacy and rule of Christ. So today we have seen from this passage the supremacy of Christ. We've seen his supremacy in creation. He is distinct from it. He is separate from creation and is the source and sustainer of it, and it was made for him. We've seen his supremacy in the church, 
He is the sovereign head of the church and the source and savior of the church so that he himself will come to have first place in everything and the supremacy of Christ in the new creation that one day he will reconcile all things. He will put all things back in their proper place in relation to him. May we exalt Christ today. May we recognize his supremacy, that he is the preeminent one, and may we respond appropriately, not just with our heads, but in our hearts and with our lives. May we joyfully worship the exalted Christ. May this fuel our worship. May we willingly submit to the lordship of Christ as believers, obeying him, and if you have been that rebel the one who is alienated and hostile, may you humble yourselves before him, crying out to him for mercy. May we eagerly live for the glory of Christ. May he have first place in everything, in our church and in our individual lives, seeking first his kingdom and living for his glory. May we continually hope in the work of Christ, trusting his death and resurrection, knowing we are made right with God. There's no condemnation for us because of what he has done. And may we boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ, this truth about the person and work of Christ. Christ is the supreme one, the exalted one. God has highly exalted him. May we highly exalt him as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the perfect revelation of you. He is the complete and final word. Thank you that he is the creator of all things. He is the the source of all creation, the, the omnipotent one who created all that is there. And he is the head of the church. He is the head of this church. Lord, we recognize him as our Lord and as the giver of life. And and we know that he will make all things new and right upon his return. Lord, fill our hearts with praise for Christ. May we respond in awe of him. May we be fueled to worship him and to live for him this week. We love you and thank you for our time together in Christ's name. Amen.